Bibles with you, would you open them please to the book of Malachi as we begin a brand new sermon series through this book. I know you always like me to help you find some of these books, particularly those in the Old Testament. So if you find Zechariah in the Old Testament, make a right and you'll be in Malachi. If you find Matthew in the New Testament and make a left, you'll find Malachi. It's sandwiched between Zechariah and Matthew. Aren't you glad your pastor helps you out? <laughs> Malachi chapter 1, this morning's message, the love of God. We're going to be looking at the first five verses, but we're going to read the first two verses. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, said the Lord. Yet you say to me, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, said the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us to understand your message. A message that is just as real and relevant in 2018 as it was then when it was written, when it was spoken. Bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard the story about a man who was having a hard time getting up out of bed one Sunday morning to go to church. He kept hitting the snooze button and pulling the covers back over his head. Ten minutes became 20 minutes, 20 minutes became 30 minutes. His wife finally came in and said, listen, you get up right now. It's time to go to church. And the man said, I don't want to go to church. Nobody likes me at that church. I don't get anything out of that church. I'm not going. His wife said, you are going. You're not missing church. And the man said, will you give me three reasons why I need to go? And she said, I certainly will. It's Sunday, I'm your wife, and you're the pastor. <laughs> now get up and go. I wonder as we enter the book of Matthew if the prophet Malachi didn't want to hit the snooze control, if he didn't want to pull the covers over his head and stay in bed as he has been sent to speak to a people who would not listen but nevertheless need to be told. The people in Malachi's day, God's people, had a spiritual malaise and an apathetic state that they were in. Let me explain specifically what I'm talking about because that spiritual malaise is alive and well in many churches today. That apathetic state exists even today as we gather together. When the people who claimed the name of the Lord God in Malachi's day came to worship, they came with a yawn and an eye on the watch. 
That's what they looked like. They came in at 10.30 sharp and left at 12 noon dull. When they gave to God's work, they reached in their pocket and pulled out the change and threw the change in the collection plate. They gave God the leftovers out of their wallet and purses. You might say they nickeled and dimed God when it came to the offering. When they served, they served like zombies. They didn't have any expression. They didn't have any emotion. There was no passion. There was no commitment. They just went through the motions because they had to or somebody had to. They prayed in cliches. Robotic responses that required no thinking, no feeling. Just words that were empty and meaningless to them that they directed to God. They witnessed with closed lips and hardened hearts. They were a dried-eyed people in a hell-bound world and it didn't bother them a bit. And they treated God's word with indifference and in relativeness. And in this darkened state, these people that Malachi has been sent to speak to, they have the audacity to blame God for who they are, where they're at, what they have, and what they've done. Every problem they have is God's fault. They blame God. In their minds, they have made the God of heaven a bore, a bully, and a brute, just like some people today have made him. And they have excused themselves from any responsibility, any accountability for the state that they're in. God has made me who I am. God has put me where I'm at. God has given me what I've had. God has done to me what's been happening. I haven't done anything. I'm an innocent victim of a God gone mad. It's to these people that God sends Malachi. And Malachi has a seven-point message to God's people who have taken on this malaise, this apathy. Seven points. And every point it's with a purpose. I want you to come back to me. I want you to repent of the way you think. I want you to repent of the way you talk. I want you to repent of the way you act. I want you to stop, turn around, and come back to me. Will they listen? Well, you'll have to come to the other sermons to find out. But that was God's purpose. Now, as before we go to our verses, I think it would be helpful if we considered a little bit about Malachi. You see, not much is known about Malachi. He just kind of pops in, writes the book, tells the truth to God's people, then he disappears and you don't hear no more about him. But what are some things I think we need to understand about Malachi as he spoke then and as he's going to speak today? First of all, I want you to know that he was God's man. 
He was an oracle. He was a prophet. He was called by God himself and commissioned by God himself. Malachi didn't go to the draft board and say, I'd like to sign up to be a prophet. He didn't go to the recruitment center and say, put my name on the dotted line, I'm going to be an oracle. He wasn't interested in either of those positions. But God was interested in him. And God tapped him on the shoulder one day and said, you're my man. I've got a special message and a special mission for you. So I want us to know that Malachi was God's man. I also want us, secondly, to know that his message that he's going to bring to God's people came from God. God didn't say, Malachi, I'm calling you to go to my church. I'm calling you to go to my people. And why, by the way, you think of something to tell them. Or tell them your opinion. Or tell them your theory. Or tell them your speculation. No, God said to Malachi, you're my man. And this is the message I'm going to give you to carry to them. For the prophets came not in old time by the will of man, but were holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Spirit of God. Thirdly, Malachi's message was to God's people. He didn't go to the bars. He didn't go to the prostitution dens and houses. He didn't go to the drug shacks. He went to the church. If there's one thing I've learned is most of you like when an evangelist comes and preaches salvation because most of you can doze when he does because you're saved. He ain't going to bother you any. But you get very uncomfortable when somebody preaches to the saved. Malachi came to preach to those who supposedly claimed the name of Yahweh God. Whether they were saved or not, I don't know, but they claimed to be. And Malachi came to them. He didn't go to the pimps. He didn't go to the prostitutes. He didn't go to the pagans. He didn't go to the perverts. He came to the people of God. Because God knew if Israel was going to be saved, the church had to be saved. And do we understand if America is going to be saved, the church has got to get saved. Fourthly, Malachi's message was not just for then, it's for now. Do you know the Bible that you have in your hand is an active, living book? This book is alive. You can't destroy it. It's eternal. This book has eternal life, and it's living, and it's active, and it's speaking today just like it spoke then. So if you're coming to church and you're thinking, well, the pastor's just telling stories about ancient history. No, I'm telling stories about contemporary today. The Bible applies to all people of all generations. It's fresh, it's current, it's relevant. As we're going to see, uncomfortably see. And then lastly, Malachi's message from God 
is written in a form that we call didactic dialectic. Got that? No, I'm not on NyQuil. And I'm not as smart as I used to be, but I still got some sense in me. May not be worth a dollar, but I got some change. What is didactic dialectic? It's a way of writing where one person makes a statement. The other party refutes it, denies it. And the party who made the original statement then goes back and restates it again. Look at verse 2, and I'll give you an example of what we're going to see six more times in the weeks to come. God is the first person. God makes a statement in verse 2. He says to the people and to the church, he said what? I love you. They respond back to him in verse 2. How have you loved us? Sarcasm with a capital S. God then demonstrates what he declared by telling them, I showed you my love by loving Jacob and hating Esau. Statement declared. Statement denied, statement demonstrated with example. That's what it means when we talk about didactic, dialectic. So having said all of that, let's go to our text and our time remaining. Our message is the love of God. And I want us to see four things about God's love as it is shown out in the first five verses of Malachi. First of all, I want us to see that God's love is declared. Look at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, I like to be honest with you as your pastor. I think you appreciate honesty. I had a people like God had back then, and they were in my congregation. I don't know if I would be so gracious to start out. If I knew you had a spiritual malaise, if I knew you were in an apathetic state, if I knew that you were yawning through the services, throwing in leftovers in the collection plate, could care less if you served or not served, or if you did it successfully or failed it, didn't matter. If I knew you couldn't pray your way out of a paper bag, if I knew you didn't witness because you didn't care, I think the way I would approach you is, I'd blast you out of the water. I'd boot you in the backside. I'd belittle you. I'd put it on you as Ajax. Now don't look at me so spiritual. Oh, we would do that. You'd do it too. But God is not Jim Palmer, and God is not you, and thank God for that. God starts out. He comes out of the gate. He comes out of the box. He comes into the first quarter, into the first inning. He immediately declares to his people, 
I love you. Yes, you're far from me. Yes, your beliefs and behaviors are not what I would want them to be. Yes, you are drifting into a spiritual malaise. Yes, you're deep in a state of apathy. But God says to you, I want you to know I love you. I love you. This word for love in the Hebrew is an interesting word. It speaks of love of relationship. A love of relationship. What God is saying is, I'm your father. You're my children. As an earthly father would love his children, I love you. Wow. He also says it using a word that's in the perfect tense. What does that mean? It means love in three time zones. God's saying, I love you, my people, as a father would love his children. I loved you in the past, yesterday. I love you in the present, today. And I will love you in the future, tomorrow. I will always love you, is what he's saying. Wow. Get it down big, get it down plain, get it down straight. God is love and love is God and God loves you. Nobody else may love you, but God loves you. And he loves you and I with an everlasting love. When you think about God's love, you think about a love that's sovereign. God chooses to love us. Nobody twisted God's arm and said, love those people. Nobody bribed or blackmailed God or threatened God into loving people. God says, without stutter or stammer, I love you. I know you. I know all about you. And I choose to love you. You see, if you knew all about me, you may not love me. <laughs> I knew all about you, I may not love you. But God knows everything about us. He knows every thought. He knows every feeling. He hears every word. He sees every action. He knows our flaws and our faults. He knows our sins and our shortcomings. He knows our warts and our blemishes. And he says, I love you. Why does he love us? Because he chooses to love us. His love is sovereign, but his love is also gracious. What can we do to make God love us? Nothing. He loves us because he chooses to love us. We don't deserve his love, but he chooses to love us. So don't think that you're doing anything to make God love you. God loves you anyway. He's not only a God of sovereign love and gracious love, he's a God of supreme love. Our love is like the tide, humanly speaking. Sometimes we love somebody more, sometimes we love them less. It all depends on what they do for us. But God's love never changes. God's love is always supreme. It's at the pinnacle. It's at the zenith. It's, at the, it's in the catbird seat. It's always there. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we can do to make God love us less. 
You know, many people get caught up in the performance trap. If I'm good, God will love me. If I'm bad, God won't. If I do all this for God, He will be impressed and love me more. If I don't do anything for God, then He will not be impressed and He'll love me less. Folks, don't get caught up in that. So many people live their life trying to please somebody so they'll love them. And that carries over to their relationship with God. I'm not saying we shouldn't try to please God. But if you think in doing something for God, He's going to love you more, not doing something for God, He'll love you less, you're wrong, wrong, wrong. God's love is sovereign, God's love is gracious, God's love is supreme, and God's love is personal. Remember, it's a, it, that word love is a relationship word, a father to his children. Any father worth his salt knows his children. Any mother worth her salt knows her children. And God loves us equally, but God loves us differently because we're all at different places in what we call the journey of life and faith. And God meets us there where we're at. In other words, what he does for your pastor, don't get poochy lip because he didn't do it for you. And what he does for you, I shouldn't get angry about it. Why? Because we all are equally loved, but we're all treated differently depending on our circumstance and our situation. You parents know that. You grandparents know that. We love our children and our grandchildren uh, equally, don't we? But what we'll do for a three-month-old baby is different than what we'll do for a nine-year-old girl. Right? You just you, you love equally, but you love differently. And God loves us personally. He, in other words, He meets us where we're at. And by the way, God knows your name. God knows your need. If God has a refrigerator, your picture's on it. God declares His love. What a patient, long-suffering God to declare His love to a people who were not interested in Him, could care less. Look at verse 2. God's love is disputed now. Remember the didactic dialectic? God makes a declarational statement. He says, I love you. Now, this is the response of the people when he says that. I want you to imagine you turn to your person sitting next to you, your wife or your husband or one of your family members, and you said to them, I love you. Now, I want you to think this is what you get back. Look at verse 2. I have loved you, said the Lord. And yet their response back to him was, how have you loved us? I mean, they got their lip pooched out. They got their fist up. I mean, what they're saying back to God is full of sarcasm. It's dripping with sarcasm, with sneering. Malachi says, God loves you. And they say to Malachi, he don't love us. He's the reason we are who we are and we're at where we're at and we have what we have and we've done what we've done. He's the reason. Can you imagine turning to somebody and say, I love you, and they just go. Now, what would you do? Let's go back to what you would do. You're sitting next to somebody. They whisper in your ear. 
and they pop you in the head. They spit on you. They kick you. Who cares? I think you'd be a little perturbed, wouldn't you? Don't y'all look so spiritual out there? I can tell you what, I'd slap somebody across the head. You pour your heart out to them and they break your heart and give it back to you. And God says to his people, I love you. And they say to God, we don't care. You don't love us. If you loved us, you would heal us of our sicknesses. You'd give us a miracle, God, if you loved us. You'd make us wealthy, God. You'd protect us from our enemies. You would save our marriages. You'd bring our children back. You'd give us a big house with three cars to go in that three-car garage. God, if you loved us, you would give us, give us, give us, give us. And you would overlook our sin. You'd be understanding. You don't love us, God. That's what the people are saying in so many words back to God. God, you don't love us because you won't make us happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Now, you might sit out here and look at me and say, I can't believe people do that. Don't we do it? I mean, let's get down real where the rubber meets the road. Don't some of you belly ache when God don't give you what you think you're supposed to have? God, where's my healing? You didn't heal me, so you don't love me. Where's my miracle, God? You're giving miracles out to everybody else. Where's my miracle? Well, I didn't get a miracle, so you don't love me. God, why didn't you save my marriage? You save everybody else's. Why didn't you save mine? God, why didn't you bring my runaway children back? God, why didn't I get that job with that promotion, with that big pay raise? You give it to somebody else. You don't love me, God. Don't we get a little that way sometimes? We measure God's love by what he gives us. And when he doesn't give us what we want, we blame him and we excuse ourselves. We do that, don't we? Sure we do. And the people were doing it then. Now God is going to come back in verses 2 through 4. God declares his love. The people dispute the love. They say, you don't love us. And so now God has to demonstrate how he loved them. If you notice, it says at the end of verse 2, God, using Malachi, asked a question. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says that you know that's true, and it was. It was an obvious statement. Then the Lord says, I love Jacob and I hated Esau. And I laid his mountain and his heritage to waste in the dragons of the wilderness. Edom was impoverished. But the Edomites said, we will return and rebuild our desolate places. But the Lord says, when you do that, I will tear them back down. You're the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord is indignation forever. Now, God is going to demonstrate to his people in his church why he loves them. And he says, do you remember Esau and Jacob? 
I loved Jacob. I hated Esau. That proves my love to you. Now, I want to give you a little background, if I may, so you'll understand this statement, because it's been taken by some preachers to make it more than what it is or what it means. What God is saying is, because I chose Jacob over Esau, that proves to you that I love you. Because the promises I made to Abraham that went through Isaac, I brought them through Jacob to you. The promises I made, the covenant I made with Abraham, the blessings that go with those promises and covenants, I have channeled them through Isaac, and then I channeled them through Jacob, that you might be the beneficiary of them. I didn't give them to Esau. Now let me tell you the story real quick of Jacob and Esau. They were twin brothers. They were born by the same father, the same mother, at the same time, out of the same womb. Esau was born first. Time would show us that Esau, one of the twins, was a blue-collar, man's man type of guy. He was rough, he was tough, he was hard, he was rude, he was crude. Everything was about him and everything was about this life. He cared nothing for God. He cared nothing for the things of God. He wasn't concerned about the sacred. He was all secular. You might know somebody like him. That's who he was. His brother was Jacob. Jacob was a white-collar twin. Esau was good from the neck down, not much up here. Jacob was a neck-up guy. He was smart as a whip up here, not much down here. Jacob was a mama's boy. He was passive. He was basically weak. He was more of an indoor guy than an outdoor guy. But he was smart. He was a schemer. He was clever. He was very good with his tongue. He had a silver tongue. He could talk his way out of anywhere. But most importantly, Jacob had a love for God. He cared about spiritual things where his brother didn't. Now let me ask you a question. If you were going to pass on an inheritance to a next generation and it had to go through two of your sons, which son would you give it to to pass it on to? You'd give it to the son who shows the most interest in what you're going to give away. And God is going to give away the Abrahamic covenant, the Abrahamic promises, the Abrahamic blessings that he gave to Isaac. He's now going to have to give them to the people who are going to come down the line. If he gives them to Esau, they're going to die with Esau. He don't care. He don't want them. So God says, I'm going to give them to Jacob. The first should get it, but the second will get it in this case because Jacob will allow me to use him to conduit those blessings. 
Does that make sense to you? It's not talking about salvation. It's not saying God, it's not saying to Jacob, I love you and I'm going to save you, and I hate Esau and I'm going to send him to hell. That's not what's being said. It's a, it's a choice that God is having to make of how to funnel the covenant, the promises, the blessings from one generation to another. He can't give them to Esau because Esau don't want them. So he gives them to Jacob. And Jacob, who loves him, admittedly flawed love at times, is the one that the blessings will now come to. And those blessings ended up for the people of Malachi's day, although they didn't even know it. I mean, suppose you had a Barbie collection, ladies. I mean, you had every Barbie of the year since 1950, maybe. You got 68 Barbies. Pretty valuable collection, maybe. And you're going to get pass them on. You got two daughters. One daughter loves Barbies. And whenever she sees yours, she looks at them with awe, with admiration. She takes them off the shelf. She dusts them, fixes their clothes, makes sure everything's nice. And then you have another daughter who could care less about it. And if she gets her hands on one of them, or she'll take her off all of her clothes and put her back up there naked and give the clothes to the dog, and he chews them up. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out who's getting the Barbie dolls in the will. Well, God's smarter than you and I, and he saw Jacob and Esau, and he said, I know which direction those boys are going to go because I know the future. And Malachi says to the people of his day, he says, listen, that's how much God loved you. He took those blessings and gave them to Jacob that they could come to you because if they went to Esau, you had never got them. And by the way, Esau's descendants became the Edomites, arch enemies of Israel. You see, so God knew that not only Esau didn't want the blessings and would have threw them away and wasted them, he knew what his people that was going to come out of Esau were going to be called and what they would do. Aren't you glad God's smarter than you and I? So he says, I chose Jacob. That's how you should know that I love you. By the way, how do we know God loves us today? Every time you look at that cross, that's God's love letter to you and I. For God so loved the world, you and I that he gave his only beloved begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So when God says he loves us, and you sit there and say, I don't believe it, God just says, look right there. And then lastly, and we're through, what, what were the people of Malachi's day supposed to do with this love? God declared his love. It was rejected. God demonstrates his love to them by choosing Jacob over Esau to be a conduit, a channel of the blessings. 
Well, what did Malachi say to the people of God you're supposed to do with all this? Just sit on it? Write it down in a journal? Close the journal? Let it collect dust? No. In verse 5, he says, you're to take this love and diffuse it. Take it out of here, out there. Okay? Notice what he says in verse 5. Notice, your eyes shall see. Maybe one day your eyes will see that I love you. And you will say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. God declares his love. His love is dejected, disallowed. God demonstrates his love, and now God's love is to be diffused. Notice it says it should be magnified from the border of Israel. You know what that's saying? If you know God loves you, and you know that God has demonstrated that love to you, guess where that love should go? From here to here? No. From here to here? No. From here out there. How can this lost and dying world ever come to know Jesus as Savior till they know that God loves them? Our world is so full of hate, we need to let them know that there's a God in heaven who loves them. Psalm 13, the psalmist says, I will sing unto the Lord because he has dealt with me goodly. I love old-time quartet music. Last night I had a few minutes before I went to bed and I went to YouTube. Y'all, y'all watch YouTube? I went to YouTube and I punched in the Kingsman Quartet. One of the premier quartets of all time out of Asheville, North Carolina. And when they're beginning, they were loaded with talent. Anthony Berger was their pianist. Gary Shepard was their tenor. They had a guy by the name of Big Jim, and boy, that guy could sing, but I'm telling you, he could entertain. He'd leave you in stitches as they sang about Jesus. And they sang a song I found on YouTube that I think summarizes what we need to be doing. Go and tell somebody what the Lord can do. Go and tell somebody what He's done for you, how He gave you victory. How he brought you through. Go and tell somebody what the Lord can do. Who's the somebody? Right out there. Heads are bowed.